This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Sustainable-ish podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Today, I am talking to Cass Hebron, who is a freelance climate communicator and editor of The Green Fix, a weekly newsletter aimed at bridging the gap between systemic change for a green and just future and citizens who care about sustainability but don't know what they can do to have more of an impact. I absolutely love that for a tagline for a newsletter. I've been following Cass uh, for quite a while now on social media and I originally got in touch with her a little while ago after I signed up for a webinar that she did with Creative Mornings called How to Talk About the Climate Crisis Without Losing Your Friends, which I thought was such a brilliant title for a session. And I really wanted to get her on the podcast to share with you some of the brilliant nuggets that she has about how we engage people around the climate crisis. But we ended talking about so many different things. So things like why individual changes are still important, even though we also need big systemic changes. Why you don't need to be an expert and know all the facts and stats to talk about climatey stuff with friends and family. The importance of sharing these co-benefits that come with climate action and painting a really hopeful vision for the future, as well as top tips for climate conversations with friends and family and more top tips for engaging um, around climate stuff on social media and and this idea that we all potentially have these sort of eco-echo chambers and how important it is that we try and break out of them. There is so much good stuff in here. If you're someone like me, who I have to confess still does struggle sometimes having climate conversations in real life, I really do hope this helps. And if you are interested in getting your head around the climate science at the same time as learning and practicing some tools for getting braver at talking about climate stuff, then do have a look at uh, my new carbon literacy course, Talking Climate. We're on about our fifth run through now. So do check out, I will post a link in the show notes for that. And if anyone's interested in coming on that, I've just put up some new June dates. So those are there. And lastly, just a heads up that um, the sound on Cass's end isn't great on this episode. Um, We had um, a try at sort of cleaning it up uh, post post production. Is that what it's called in the editing bit? Um, um, My lovely editor, Emily, has done her very best with it. Um, So I hope it's not too distracting. I hope it doesn't take away from all the brilliant stuff that Cass shares with us. Enjoy and I will catch you next time. Hello, Cass. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Really um, looking forward to diving into this and to chatting to you. So can you introduce yourself to kick off? Sure. So hi, I'm Cass. Um, 
I work as a communications consultant in Belgium. I work for environmental NGOs and I'm editor of the Green Fix newsletter, which is about bridging the gap between systemic change for a green and just future and concerned citizens who care about sustainability, but they don't know what they can do to have more of an impact. Amazing. So lots of things there. Communications consultant sounds really big and really grown up. Um, how does one become a communications consultant? Like, how did? Where, what's your backstory? Where did? You... <laughs> yeah, it's a really jargon-heavy title, yeah. and usually when I say it, people just give me a blank look. They don't know what it means, which is fair enough. I studied communications. Well, I studied linguistics at university, and I was hoping to pursue a career in um, communications, in journalism, something along those lines. But I also had this growing interest in sustainability on a personal level. I was shopping secondhand. I was trying to make sustainable choices. And I run this student magazine about sustainability called Wild, which is still running today. Oh, amazing. I'm interested in that. And I really enjoyed running that magazine. It was a great chance to practice my uh, journalism skills, Mm. my editing, and to write about a topic I cared about. And then when it came to graduation time, the usual Uh, imminent graduation panic, uh, I realized that I could do this as a career. I could write about sustainability as a career. So I started applying to NGOs to join their media teams. And I spontaneously applied to one in Brussels uh, that a previous co-worker sent to me. She said, oh, look, fair trader, hiring for an intern for six months in Brussels. And I applied for it like like most students do in the middle of the night without thinking it was anywhere. And that's the one I ended up getting. And I was faced with the reality of, oh, I have to move to Brussels now. I have to... Uh, Where is Brussels? <laughs> I didn't know anything about Belgium at the time. I was just, I hadn't expected it to go anywhere, but I moved and I worked with the Fair Trade Advocacy Office who are promoting EU laws to protect uh, fairer trade. And from there, I found another better um, traineeship, well, better, better in that it was um, better than anything I could have got if I'd returned to the UK. And I uh, started working with Oxfam. And then before I knew it, I'd been working in the media teams of NGOs for years. And then last year, I decided to go freelance. So I was doing the same things, and I'm doing the same things, but it's much more varied now. So I'll work for one NGO writing press releases I'll work for another managing the social media I'll work for another revamping their website it's a whole range of Mm. anything to do with words wow and so you're still really young aren't you Uh, I'm 24 but my birthday's next month you're gonna be 25 (laughs) next month did you say next week yes next week oh amazing you look so fresh-faced and I feel very old and tired (laughs) (laughs) not at all so the green fix, I loved that that sentence you had, like your tagline for the green fix. Can you tell us that again? Something about bridging the gap between the systemic. Yeah, I want well, to bridge the gap between systemic change for a green and just future and concerned citizens who care about sustainability, but don't necessarily know where to start. God, and that just encapsulates the whole problem, I think, for most of us, doesn't it? That, you know, we, we're aware that we need these big systemic changes. And it feels like we're just one inconsequential, tiny little cog in the wheel that is, you know, how, how do we even start and where do we even start? And I think effective communication around this is, is so, so important, isn't it? And I guess that's where people like you 
come in hopefully <laughs> to help us yeah it's, it's a huge issue there's such an information gap in what normal people like people that aren't working in the sustainability mm. sphere can do we tend to think that our impact is limited to individual lifestyle changes yes. like recycling reusable bags which of course make a difference but we can make a much greater difference but we just don't know how we don't know what those avenues are to change things at the top at a political level so come on then tell us tell us what they are <laughs> now I'm like what do I need to do well I think firstly there's a lack of transparency from governments and from the system this very abstract concept of the system about how citizens can participate in influencing laws and what I do in the green fix is I try and regularly host opportunities for open consultations on upcoming legislation, right. on NGO campaigns that people can get involved in, and on the changes that we can make as individuals, but that have a measurably greater impact than uh, stressing out about plastic packaging. Mm. Of course, we should try and avoid plastic packaging, but we shouldn't uh, devote all our mental energy to small lifestyle changes like that. The way I see it is living a sustainable lifestyle is so that I can live in line with my values. Yes. But what I do for work is where I believe the greater impact happens. We can make a, a greater impact if we're targeting the people most responsible for emissions. So mm. that is um, governments, particularly in Western Europe and uh, in the global north. Mm. And if we're targeting corporations and being politically informed. There's so many different ways that you could go yeah. about this. I, I almost don't know where to begin. And interestingly, I think if, if the order of... Um, sort of recording is is going to match the order that these podcasts go out the um, this will come out a week after I just did a podcast with Steve I want to say no Steve Shaw I think at um, Power for People about the they've got a big um, campaign at the moment about the local electricity bill and I interviewed him a couple of years ago about how lobbying works in parliament and as you say I, I just had no idea as a kind of you know fairly naive not hugely politically engaged citizen how it works with Parliament and how bills get introduced and like, you know, how to lobby your MP and why that matters and all this sorts of thing. And actually, as you say, the the power of sitting down and writing, you know, a three line um, letter to my MP to ask them to support the local electricity bill, if that all goes through and, and um, you know, does what they want it to, that's probably significantly better investment of my time than stressing out about which plastic can go in my recycling bin but it's hard because that's such a visible tangible thing isn't it it's really difficult exactly we're very uh prone to focusing well I think there's two strands here we really like seeing immediate impact Mm. of what we're doing so it's a lot more satisfying to make an ethical purchase or purchase with an ethical label on it and think okay I've done my bit Mm. um rather than the things that are very well, they're boring. It's boring to read the policy and to figure <laughs> yeah. out like where your policymakers are. And the minute you say legislation, everyone's eyes yes, glaze over. Yeah. But it's so important. And it, it's not actually boring. It's just been presented in very boring ways by the people in power. Of course, mm. it's in their interests that we don't take an interest in what they're doing, because that mm. way they're going to face less opposition. But we also have a tendency to look very inward and uh, see ourselves as just single people making a change and what I come across a lot is people outside the NGO world that are trying to make lifestyle changes to be sustainable which is amazing and often they're doing great things to be zero waste within their own homes but the focus is very much inward on what Mm -hmm. is happening within my own house and I believe that we have this binary 
this very simplistic view of individual change versus system yes. change. Yes. And that it's an either or and it's a it should be a yes and yeah. Yeah. It's it's both because the system mm. is just a series of individuals. And when we tap into our power as a collective, so when we extend our same concern about the environment to our neighbors and to our community, mm. start thinking about what we can achieve together, then we have a much greater impact on the system. Um, by the system, I mean the current way of living, working, and doing politics. Yeah. Did you see, there was an article, I think it came out last year, I don't know if it was on Medium, or, and somebody was talking about this, this concept of like the climate shadow. And as you said, as individuals, it's if, if we sort of become concerned or we are concerned, we're thinking about what, what can we do to reduce our carbon footprint and our impact and our own emissions. But this idea of the climate shadow as being those things we do that, that wouldn't have an impact on our carbon footprint. So writing to our MP or going on a climate strike or those kinds of things, but that actually have the potential to have a, a far greater impact. And I think in there, the author gave the... Um, the example of like Greta, you know, had she just said, you know what, I'm going to go vegan or I'm going to halve my carbon footprint, that would have been great, but would have had nowhere near the impact that she's had of, um, you know, everything that she's done and the climate strike and all that sort of thing. So I think that's quite an interesting way of kind of framing it and helping us to look a little bit outside. Yeah, it's exactly that. If, if you sign a petition, that's great. If you sign a petition and get one other person to sign the petition, your impact has doubled. Yes. You can very easily uh, turn one individual action into a movement. And you yeah. don't need to have thousands and thousands of followers or, or to be Greta Thunberg in order to multiply your impact tenfold. You know, you could go pick up a piece of litter in the park, but if you get three friends to come with you, yes. you can clean the whole park. Yes. Yeah, I like that. And, you know, I think the other thing is I talk a lot to to people about is you know it's not necessarily just doing the thing that you're doing at home or whatever but actually having conversations with people about it being seen to be doing it asking other people like you said to join you and that sort of thing but I think in some respects that's the hardest part of climate stuff is talking about it and you did a um a webinar recently didn't you and it had a brilliant title which I can't remember now can you remember what it what it was called because it just I was like yes that's what we need how to talk about the climate crisis without losing your friends. <laughs> <laughs> without everyone hating you. Yes. Because there's so much fear almost. I mean, there might be too strong a word. I feel a real discomfort around talking to friends and family, whereas I'll quite happily do a podcast or stand up and do a talk. Or, but actually talking to people I know, worrying that they're thinking I'm judging them, that they're judging me, that they just want me to shut up and go away. There's so much emotion, isn't there, around trying to have these conversations. And do you still find that even as someone who is a communication specialist? Please say yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, always. I mean, that no matter what, if you're interested in talking about the climate, you come across the same barriers and you feel the same awkwardness because we have these social and cultural norms about what kind of conversations you can and can't have. What can and can't is quite strong. but we, we want to keep conversations light and palatable. And uh, I think that the climate sometimes gets put in the same box as religion and politics. Yes, and yeah. Thing that you don't bring up because it might be too awkward or, or not yeah. pleasant. And, and that's the wrong way to think about climate conversations. But it's something I encounter a lot. And, and I feel it too working in the climate sphere 
that people are very quick to start apologizing for not being vegan or for having something in plastic as if the point of the conversation was for me to try and guilt trip other people to to be some kind of climate accountability person like you're the you're the climate police who's going to come and yeah yeah yes (laughs) so like obviously I just want you to download everything in your mind and everything helpful to us in the space of you know 45 the next 45 minutes to be able to help us but I think especially that thing about trying to bridge the gap between us as individuals and the sort of systemic change that's needed, but also about how we have these conversations without losing friends. I mean, what I get, bet you get asked this all the time, like top tips, but how do we, because sometimes it can feel a bit like you're shoehorning it into the conversation or, um, or, you know, you've got a friend who's sharing their holiday pictures and online and you're kind of wincing and you're massively judging them because they've flown to wherever, but you know, like you don't want to be we talk a lot in my group about being the fun sponge. You constantly feel like you're the fun sponge going, can you not have a balloon arch? Or can you, you know, maybe, oh, have a holiday in the UK. It's lovely. Or, do you know, and and yeah, you feel like you are constantly just sucking everybody's joy and fun out of things by reminding them that the planet's on fire. I mean, like, <laughs> how dare we? Yeah. What What's your experience been? And have you had any successes, I guess? Yes. So I think... We need to start when we're talking about when we're talking about climate conversations by reframing our idea of what a climate conversation is. We tend to associate it with bringing the whole mood of the table down Mm. and judging other people and making other people feel bad. Not intentionally, but we think that's how it's going to come across. But a conversation about the climate isn't just about the fact that there are fires and climate disasters happening in the IPCC report. Uh, because that's the exact kind of thing that people don't want to hear about mm-hmm. and they just switch off because it's it's too much. Mm-hmm. But it's also a conversation about solutions and about all the opportunities that are out there to build a better world mm-hmm. and how we can make the world safer and greener for our children and grandchildren and how we can think long term. So if we approach with this very positive solution-oriented mindset, I think is key. I also think it works particularly well to approach it from a personal perspective because none of us should be entering conversations with our friends and family as if we're climate scientists yes our climate scientists or um you know a policy person we shouldn't be preparing to give everyone a speech yes we're, we're just people talking to our friends and family so it should just be a conversation like any other even if your friends even if your family, even if your community are not that directly interested in sustainability themselves they care about you And Mm. if you care about something, then they care that you care. So if you approach it from a personal perspective and say, I worry when I think about the future of um, local green spaces, when I worry about rising levels of air pollution, um, when I worry about what the world will look like in 2050, they care that you're worried. And that's Mm. a great place to start. If we find some common values next, So first, you're approaching it as a person, not as a preacher or or an activist. And second of all, you find something in common with the person that you're talking to. Nobody, none of us wants to be preached at about the lifestyle changes we should make. Our instinct is to defend ourselves and to explain why we're not changing. And, you know, I do it too. I, I start explaining why my vegan things are wrapped in plastic and, oh, but that's an exception because I'm already doing my best. You have to find what does the person you're talking to care about? Because 
they might not care about what a scientist says on the news, but they care about you and they probably care about some of the shared issues that are affecting them uh, locally. They might care about parks being destroyed for housing. They might care yes. about rising levels of health conditions in children as a result of environmental contamination. There will be some overlap. And we all have a nostalgic connection to the environment as well. For me, it, it makes me sad to think that my granddad could identify so many birds. He, he lived in Devon and he could hear any bird and he just knew the name of it. And also the, all the flowers, my, yeah, my grand yeah, yeah. could name any of them. I can't. And not only that, I don't think that all those birds will exist anymore yeah. in, in a few decades if they haven't already gone. And I want to be able to share that with future generations. Yeah. And I think that other people, that might be a shared interest mm. that the other person has. If you tap into that connection that they have with the environment mm. through whatever way, and then you approach it like that. And then not just to end it as a, I'm concerned, oh, this is really bad end of conversation yes. because that just makes everyone feel bad and we didn't really achieve very much but to present an alternative we need a vision yes. for the future we need not just to talk about what we don't want we don't want fossil fuels we don't want pollution we don't want this but what do we want we want a world that is fairer that is greener we want uh, a way of living that actually sustains us and that makes us feel fulfilled and we know how to do those things we mm. know how to achieve those things so we say Look, this worries me and this is why I'm changing my lifestyle this is why I've got involved in this local green initiative yeah. I'm doing this um you're presenting a story I care about this this is why I care this is why I think you should care or this is what I think you care about and here's why I'm changing yeah it's it's just a conversation about your experience not a not a report and I think that that bit about kind of leading with the the feeling that I worry because um, I feel like a lot of people think, well, I can't start that conversation because I'm not 100% sure of the facts or like I'm going to get that confused in my head or they're going to come back at me and say, well, where's your evidence? And I mean, whoever really has a conversation with a friend like that? You know, I think we in our heads, yeah. we assume that ev everyone else, um, you know, if we're not seeing them overtly making changes, then they're not bothered or they're going to be a climate denier and we're going to get into this massive argument. But I think the vast majority of people do care they just don't really know what to do about it and I don't you know I don't think I'd pull anyone up on a on a stat or that sort of thing but actually the fact if you're leading with I'm worried about this no one can argue with you on that because that is the fact you're worried about it they can't argue with you about your emotions so it's a really I think a really um not positive because it's not positive if you're worried about something but it's it's a um you know quite a strong way to to go in isn't it to go in gently if that makes sense a strong way to go in gently is leading with your feelings and what you're worried about exactly you don't need to know all the statistics and all the facts or understand all the science just to care and just mm. to know that we can do better because also wanting a more sustainable future is not just a logic driven conclusion based on scientific mm. reports but we know that there's benefits we know that it makes us happier to live in a life that um that exists within planetary boundaries mm. the things that sustain the planet also sustain us when we have a healthy planet we are healthier physically mentally mm. when we spend more time in nature that improves our mental well-being it improves the life expectancy of our children when we tap into community action we get a whole range of benefits just mm. from being connected to other people in a way that we're not in the current way of living so 
you don't have to know all the science to know that you want that world. You yeah. want a world that connects you to other people that makes you happy. Yeah. If you need the stats, they're out there. Yeah, there's all the stats you could ask for. But I mean, how important is it, do you think, that we frame the future we want positively rather than the future we don't want negatively, if that makes sense? Because I think we're quite guilty in the climate space of talking about all the things that we're going to lose. So we're going to not be able to fly as much. We're going to have to eat less meat. We're going to have to you know, not have as much stuff and all these things that we've certainly our generation, you know, I think have, have felt are their sort of almost birthrights in the developed world. Well, of course, I should be able to fly wherever I want and eat whatever I want and buy whatever I want and all this sort of thing. And that actually we're, we're framing it in a very much these things will be taken away from you rather than actually what we're going to gain is better physical health, better mental health, more green space. I think we're still falling down on that a little bit. Uh, yeah, completely. I think in our rush to highlight the urgency of the climate crisis, we focus so much on the negative and the worst case scenarios, which is necessary. We do need to highlight the importance of it. We cannot pretend that there is an easy fix to a complicated problem. Uh, but we emphasize that negative messaging at the expense of the positive uh, or, or the vision. Mm. In the climate movement, we lack a very defined vision for what alternative looks like for what we can present to people as this is what the future will look like if we change our lifestyles yes. now rather than this is what the future will look like if we don't yes we see that we we see that in the news every day we need to present a very clear vision of what that will look like and that is quite hard to do but like you say we we have so much to gain from a sustainable future and i think we need to shift away from the idea that we are losing things uh, if we change our lifestyle, because right now we have the illusion of abundance. Mm. I, I think, well, this is my personal opinion, but we have this illusion that because there is a lot of choice in the supermarket and we can fly everywhere cheaply mm -hmm. as privileged people in, in Europe, uh, that we have an abundance of choice and opportunity. But actually this current way of profiting, way of living, it's going to lead us to future scarcity. Mm. It makes us competitive. It makes us uh, try and buy our way to happiness. It makes us think that the more choice we have, the happier we are. Mm. But we see that actually we have more stuff and more options than ever before. But we also have rising levels of mental health diagnoses, mm. rising levels of anxiety and depression. The answer to a happy, fulfilling future is not in having a lot of stuff in, in this uh, current way of being. We don't have abundance. We have a scarcity mindset. Mm. We think that we should get as much as possible because it might be taken away. But actually, we need to shift into thinking a sustainable future is one of abundance mm. because it is regenerative. In a sustainable world, opportunities will keep going. The resources will not run out yes. because the planet will sustain us. We will not run out of fuel. We will not run out of food. We will not run out of opportunities because they will keep coming. The current uh, extractive society we live in, there is a finite supply. So, of course, we are in a scarcity mm. uh, mindset, a scarcity way of living. We just have this illusion that all these options will be around forever. Yeah. But that's not what makes us happy. And it's not about real abundance. And I think we all kind of know that deep down, but it's so countercultural, isn't it certainly in in a sort of modern western culture and we are constantly 
manipulated by ads and you know retailers and to to want more and to to need more and desire more and to you know that's how we reward ourselves and all that kind of thing and I don't know I mean this is going massively off topic but how how we change that that messaging and how we persuade businesses to change that messaging I know you know some businesses are starting to look at circularity and you know encouraging people to repair things and but that's not an obvious business model is it for for businesses and so it feels a very difficult thing to change that that mindset I guess I don't know I'm just sort of looking at you hoping you're going to come up with some genius (laughs) well I mean if 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 I had the answers that would be great the current that corporations in the current economic system profit out of us constantly needing more and mm. constantly buying. So it's not in their interests to change their business model because this is how they've been profiting. Yeah, they profit yeah, yeah. out of our dissatisfaction and our idea that we never have enough. Mm. And uh, we do need to change our individual mindsets to actually switch our idea of what enough is. Because mm. we have enough. We have enough stuff in the world. We don't need to buy and we will never find happiness at the end of a receipt. Mm. But corporations would have to make a really drastic change in the way that they operate to reflect that in their business model. It's not compatible with mm. a sustainable future to have this growth-driven um, <laughs> economy, mm. essentially. Yeah. So we talked about like having conversations sort of face-to-face, but Sometimes I think it maybe feels a little bit easier, or I certainly hear my audience saying, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll say, oh, you know, would you want to share that on social media? And, but often people will say, well, you know, if I share a picture of my cat, I get loads of likes and comments and things. But if I share something about, you know, climatey stuff, it's like absolute tumbleweed. But social media does play a really big role, doesn't it, in, in, in all of our lives now. But I think, potentially and sort of normalizing making these changes and um you know the the conversations that we can have on social media with people that we won't meet in in real life have you got any um experience of or tips of sort of writing um engaging posts you know for for ordinary people on the ground just wanting to to share some of the things that they're doing or share their concerns or whatever on social media and is that different to how we might have a face-to-face conversation yeah, I think social media is an incredible tool for activism and for change. And it often gets um, a bad rep for completely valid reasons. Um, but it's also one of the quickest ways we have to mobilize huge groups of people and to mm. connect with people we'd never talk with otherwise. And you have all these amazing online climate groups. So mm. I think there's so much potential there, um, even if it comes with a lot of strings attached Um but maybe I'll go on about that in a minute. But <laughs> in terms of <laughs> engaging other people on social media, I think it's pretty much the same tips as I said before. If you are posting as yourself, as just a person, not a scientist, mm-hmm. not an activist, just a concerned citizen, then people will care and they will relate to you. If you have to meet your audience where they're at, who are the people following you? Mm. You know, what kind of lives do they lead? What do they care about? So you have to connect and find those shared values, first of all. If you come in out of nowhere on a topic you've never talked about before to an audience that didn't follow you for that reason, then you might find that they're not engaged or they're just confused about where this change of tone has come from. Um, it doesn't have to be you're talking about the climate or you're not talking about the climate. 
it's about integrating climate into mm. all the conversations and all the posts you would make usually because ultimately a climate conversation cannot happen in this bubble of purely talking about the climate crisis but it affects every single part of the way that we live so no matter what you're posting about whether you're like a food blogger or like a travel instagrammer or you're just posting about walks with your dog there is a link there to the climate and you can integrate that as part of the normal conversation without having to sort of ram it into people's faces i have a friend who um is a woman in uh, in brussels who uh, looks after her dog and she has an instagram account for her dog and she reached out to me to volunteer for the green fix newsletter and I, I have to admit, the first thing I saw was she had an Instagram for her dog. And I thought, well, what could we possibly <laughs> have in common? Yeah. I made all these assumptions. And mm. I'm like, this is, this is so different. Yes, what yes. is she going to, what was the link here? But then we talked and she said to me, oh, well, I started this account for my dog. And uh, I'm followed by a lot of other wives who have their own dog Instagram accounts. And so I take the dog to climate protests and I upload that on social media Amazing. and say, you know, me and Hugo are off to the Fridays for Future protests. And I realized that she was reaching this demographic yeah, of, that you um, would, sort yeah. of middle-aged housewives that I'm never going to reach because they're yeah. not going to follow me. And she was doing it in a way that I'd never considered before. You have to find your audience. You have to find the way that they communicate and meet them there. That blew my mind, that conversation. I mean, that's really powerful, isn't it? Because this is how, you know, we we start to reach out of this sort of echo chamber. I've got somebody in my group who's um, a florist and she, you know, she's got this gorgeous Instagram feed for it and she does British grown flowers and, um, you know, got this gorgeous Instagram feed with all these very beautiful, very Instagrammable flowers. But she started talking much more about the sustainability of the flor of you know the floristry industry and you know British grown flowers and all these sorts of things and and so she's kind of accessing all these people who might not ordinarily have engaged in that but because they're they like flowers and they're engaged in flowers and somebody who they like and follow has started talking about do you know I think that's quite important because you think oh well I you know I don't have a, a following or I don't I don't work in a climate job but actually those people who are going to be able to reach out to these other people who like I probably wouldn't be able to because they won't come and follow me unless they're already interested in sustainability so I think it's really important isn't it not to just sort of think oh well yeah my job isn't a climate job or my if you do have any kind of social media following isn't a climatey one that we make this normal thing to be talking about and we can weave it into everything yeah exactly you don't have to pretend to be yeah, a scientist or a policymaker you can just be you living your life but concerned about the environment and just say that yeah and people have more of an interest there than you just suddenly switching tack and, and getting on a podium and, and ranting at people across social media yeah. uh, people have really two second attention spans so if something doesn't immediately connect with their interests they're going to keep scrolling yeah yeah and then I think because you know the algorithms are so whatever they are you know it's it's unless people start jumping on a post and liking it and stuff straight away then it could just be that it's been shown to a very minimal number of people and it's not that nobody wants to hear what you've got to say it's just that nobody's seen it because you know that's the way the algorithms work so it's, I think sometimes it is just a case of plugging on isn't it 
the algorithms yeah. don't we love the algorithms <laughs> the algorithms was the thing that I was trying not to rant about before but this is the this is the flip side of connecting with people on social media mm. is it's an amazing way to to mobilize and, and to create groups around shared interests and to expose yourselves to perspectives that you might not come across uh, locally but we do fall into these bubbles that are placed um, on us by mm. the social media algorithms it sees what we like and it shows us posts that it thinks we will like mm, because we mm. liked a very similar post but how can you ever really expose yourself to different opinions different life experiences if you are just being shown things that you're going to agree with anyway mm. it's the challenge of social media is that it's harder to reach the people that would not normally read about these things because they're not shown your posts mm. and because you can so easily just turn away and just unfollow someone when you don't like what they're posting so sometimes we have the illusion that we're making a huge impact because lots of people are liking your posts, but they're all already people that agreed with yes. you anyway, and it's not news to them. That's very nice in a kind of morale-boosting way, but it's not where the change happens. The change happens when you talk to people from bubbles that are not normally mm. topics, and when you expose yourself to perspectives that challenge your way of thinking, where you don't rest easy in your comfort zone. That's really uncomfortable, and that's why we... I mean, I, I often, you know, if I'm sort of just mindlessly scrolling through Twitter, I do sometimes think there is a Twitter somewhere that is the complete 180 degree to what I'm seeing. Do you know, I'm sort of seeing all this um, environmental stuff, probably, you know, what a left skew, left wing skewed feed and all this sort of thing. And there's somebody somewhere who's being served up the complete opposite content who believes in it as passionately as I believe, you know, and and all those sorts of things. And um, that just blows my mind sometimes. It's quite, well, I say it's quite scary, but that's obviously me making a judgment that they're completely wrong and I'm completely right, <laughs> which is what the problem is. <laughs> yeah, the problem is, is it, it polarises us. Yeah, it, it really polarises us in boxes. You're an environmentalist or you're not. Mm. You're right wing or you're left wing. Yeah. You're this or you're that. Where actually we have to embrace complexity. And sustainability is not a one-size-fits-all solution. There is no one message about the right way to achieve a, a green and just future and different experiences, different opinions are so necessary in order to create solutions that work for all of us. We can't pretend to understand um, what the experience of the climate crisis is for people in different social groups yeah. from us. And we need to listen to them and we need to listen to people that are not concerned in the climate crisis and understand why, mm. understand why they feel alienated from this or why they think it's not something relevant to them. Mm. Otherwise, we're just going to keep moving in bubbles and the solutions will never fit uh, in an integrated way. It's very easy to just to, to, to kind of think, well, because hate's too strong a word. But, you know, that, that that's what that is this polarisation, isn't it? Like, oh, well, they're not they're not engaged or they're so they, so they don't care. So they're bad people. They're not my people. Do you know, like, whereas actually maybe they're just super busy or really tired or, you know, it's. Um, trying to bring that nuance and that compassion and yeah because we're not going to get any you know we're not going to engage people to come and have a fight are we I don't know yeah, that yeah. <laughs> it's this illusion that we're polarized and I think it suits uh, the algorithms mm. and it suits uh, also the status quo to believe that there isn't us versus them but if we look at the research and I am going to quote research now but there's been studies 
in many Western European countries, I'm thinking particularly of the ones in the UK that I'm always citing by climate outreach, that show that across political and social groups, mm. we are concerned about the climate, we do care about the climate, but people are talking about it in different ways. And this is where we have this idea that other people, this mysterious group of other people, the them that mm. we have in our heads, don't care or they don't understand or they're too lazy to make a yeah. difference. And that's not the case. They just might be thinking about it in a completely different way. Yeah. They tend to have differences. We might have differences of opinion about the best way to handle the climate crisis. We might have right. differences of opinion about who's, who's responsible. But this doesn't mean that we don't have the same underlying concern. Yeah, and we know that change needs to, to happen. So we need to get rid of the idea that there isn't us versus them. There mm. is many of us from all areas of life. Do you feel like, because it's like, and I'm doing my bunny air, air quotes things, the climate is is obviously huge, big, overwhelming, complex. It's hard to, to get behind it. Whereas, so the, you know, the messaging for a long time has been, you know, turn your thermostat down to save energy and emissions and all that sort of thing and as we're recording this I think we're two weeks into the horrific situation happening in Ukraine but I'm suddenly seeing a lot more on what feels like much more mainstream media and a lot more you know even in my social well obviously in my social media bubble but framing energy saving and things in terms of you know this fight against Putin and a way to deprive him of um, oil and gas revenues and things and people seem much more able to get behind a very visible kind of common enemy like I don't know if I'm oversimplifying it or but have you kind of noticed that as well that that the same actions are being sort of recommended or you know encouraged but it feels easier for people to talk about them and to take them because there's this you know there's this it's not the environment which feels maybe too wishy-washy or too abstract yeah, I guess so. I think we we struggle to connect with doing things because it might mean the world looks a certain way in a certain number of years' time. Mm. We don't have this long-term thinking and we, we struggle to connect with the abstract, the abstract of a, a green and clean world and doing things for the planet. We feel very disconnected from the environment, so why would we do things for the environment? And also, why would we do things to secure a certain way of living in, in 2050? That's not now. When we have an immediate threat, that taps into our short-term thinking, and we are more likely to react instinctively to that because, again, we can see the gains in the mm. short term, and and I think we have we can put a face <laughs> to. And even uh, similarly with COVID, wasn't it? You know, that if if it's like, well, you can't fly because of COVID, and you can't, you know, it was physically impossible to fly, and all those kinds of things. But um, because it's that very much more immediate. And I know COVID's not visible, but, you know, it's um, that much more, yeah, immediate present threat. It's, it's the psychology of it is very different, isn't it, I think? Yeah, we see it as a short-term crisis response. And right, this yeah, is great yeah. for, for drastic action in the short term. We see from the reaction to COVID that we are capable of giant social shifts in a very mm. short space of time. The danger comes when it's when we only see it in the short term. We think of the pandemic mm. and then the pandemic is over and then we go back to a normal way of living but the pandemic was just a symptom of a way of living that was inherently broken the, the, the conflict <laughs> will not be it, it, the story won't be over mm. you know when the conflict is over which hopefully will be in the near future 
Um, but rather, again, it's, it's symptoms of ways of doing politics, of ways of doing economics that don't work. And if we don't change the root cause, if we don't start to think more in terms of long term rather than these individual short term crises, then we won't connect the dots. Yeah. We'll keep happening and there will be another pandemic. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, so what's what if some of the sort of suggestions? Obviously, we want everyone to come and sign up to the Green Fix newsletter. And I'll pop the link. Have you got have you got a link off the top of your head? And I'll definitely pop it into the, the show notes as well. Um, it's thegreenfix.substack.com. Brilliant. Um, so what kinds of suggestions um, might people find? What have you had in recently of sort of, right, off you go, go and do this to help with this systemic change that we need? So each edition uh, focuses on a different area in sustainable development. And so it's quite thematic. Uh, I've done a couple of uh, editions recently, which were really fun to write, actually. One of them was just a massive compilation of how you uh, go about finding a career that has a positive impact on people and planet. Yes, I saw that. That was an absolute monster to put together. That must have <laughs> taken you ages. Yeah. It took forever. Yeah. So if anyone wants to go and appreciate that, yeah. they're very welcome <laughs> to do so. Um, we have a couple of interesting additions coming up as well. Um, I'm trying to think what we did recently. Oh, we did a case study on rewilding. Um, so that's a topic that comes up quite often is how you can support rewilding yeah. both um, on your own and uh, supporting other organizations that are doing it. Um, I have one coming up on managing your mental health in the climate crisis mm. and how to avoid burnout. And each edition has a section of just what do I do next, yes. which is not necessarily link- linked to the theme, but it will round up upcoming events like webinars where you can learn more learning resources campaigns to get Mm. involved in one-click petitions the resources are all revolving around what is most accessible what most people can do and what will not take you very much time there's also volunteering uh, and training opportunities uh, often for young people in the UK and the EU so um, if young people are interested there's plenty of stuff on there I also share it on our social media Uh, the Green Fix has a Twitter and a LinkedIn and I also share opportunities as they come up on my social media because there's just so many out there that they don't all fit. Is the Green Fix on Twitter at the Green Fix? Yes, at the Green Fix. And you're at Cass Castaways. Castaways. <laughs> well, I'll link to all of these. Brilliant, because I love following you on social media. Um, and I was just thinking, you know, we were talking right at the beginning about the fact that, you know, we seem to, um, when we think about climate action and from an individual, we sort of look inwards. But I guess one way of trying to encourage us all to, to look outwards a bit more, to think, okay, so what's one change you've made? And then what's an action you can take to amplify that? And so that might be sharing it, taking your friend with you to the zero waste shop, or it might be signing a petition about reducing single use plastics or, you know, so, so thinking for every change you've already made or every change you do make, what's your add on to it would do you think that would be a helpful way of encouraging us to look outwards a bit more yeah I think that could work well I think um when you make a change out of concern for the climate or out of wanting to make a better world think is this only a change that I can make or are there benefits in sharing it with other people if you find an amazing ethical zero waste shop tell people about mm. it just tell people what you're doing and 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 the benefits you get out of it I, yes. I don't go around preaching that people should 
buy less, well, maybe for my work I do, but not on a personal level, but rather I get so much personal enjoyment out of uh, shopping secondhand, out of uh, only buying the things that I need, out of finding out what local volunteering opportunities are out there that I end up telling people, not because I'm a climate activist, but because it's fun. Fun, yeah. Because it's fun. Yeah. And, And I want people to know that it's fun. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that 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 co-benefits thing that the the positives that we get out of it is really important, rather than sort of beating people over the head because they might still be doing X, Y, or Z. Well, actually, like, oh my God, look at these jeans! And they were four. I've been looking for jeans everywhere for so long, and they were only four quid in the charity shop. And now I've got a pair of jeans that I'm going to love. Or look, I've this is the only pair of jeans I found that fit, and they've got a hole in them, and I've learned how to patch them, and now I can keep wearing them. And we all know how hard it is to find a pair of jeans that fit. It's that kind of positivity isn't it that I, I think we um need to try and embrace a little bit more yes brilliant thank you so much for your time it's been um amazing talking to you and um I think I saw a, a tweet you put up saying like if the next person who tells me I'm inspirational I will march you to the cash point to show me how inspirational I am or something like that but but thank you. Thank you for what you're doing and for your work. And, you know, and I, I think you're good job. You're a professional climate communicator because you do it incredibly well. So thank you ever so much for it, for everything you're doing. Oh, thank you. Well, this was a really interesting conversation. So thank you for inviting me to be on here. Um, I'm very excited um, to, to get a chance to talk to you. You've been listening to Sustainable-ish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, Do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time.